G'day mate, 40 here. So there's a popular demand. People say you play Tucker Carlson a lot, but you never comment on him. So let's start off. Let's play some Tucker Carlson. And let me give you some cutting edge commentary. Okay, here we go. Well, it looks like you're going to get a hot war with Russia and China, whether you want one or not. Yesterday morning, an American Reaper drone went down over the Black Sea. We still do not know exactly what Okay, so Tucker Carlson is entertaining. He, by, by the virtue of the medium that he works in, he has to speak to an average IQ audience around, you know, 100 to 105. So this idea that uh, because a U.S. drone and a Russian fighter, all right, had a unhelpful interaction, had a negative interaction, Okay, I don't think we're cruising for World War Three, but I basically agree with Tucker that we're a lot closer to World War Three, thanks to the extent of our intervention on behalf of Ukraine. So Tucker uses dramatic overstatement. It makes him extremely compelling and entertaining. What happened? We're not going to lie to you. We don't know. And we don't expect to find out anytime soon, if ever. The Biden administration says it knows. It says the unmanned drone was harassed and damaged by two Russian fighter jets over international waters. That's all we have. We're going to have to take their word for it. Everybody else seems to be. Lindsey Graham didn't ask many penetrating questions. No, he moved immediately, seized the opportunity to demand that the Pentagon attack the Russian Air Force. Here he is. Well, we should hold him accountable and say that if you ever get near another uh, U.S. set flying in international waters, your airplane would be shot down. What would Ronald Reagan do right now? He would he would start shooting Russian. Okay, I, I think that's absolutely absurd. Planes down if they were threatening our assets. What would Ronald Reagan do? Oh, good question, Senator Graham. Ronald Reagan's two-term presidency was notable for the fact that he did not declare war on the Russian Air Force, and therefore the United States did not go to war with Russia. And millions of lives were saved as a result. That's not a small thing. Put one in the Reagan win column there. Another president they told you was a crazed warmonger who actually kept us out of war, but one. Okay, so the Los Angeles Times has an op-ed. All right, uh, Ron DeSantis' Ukraine comment is reckless. It's an invasion, not a territorial dispute. Well, whether or not uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and I do believe Russia invaded Ukraine, so I do think that invasion is a more accurate term than territorial dispute. doesn't mean that the United States needs to intervene or subsidize Ukraine's defense. So the LA Times takes Ron DeSantis to task for questioning the importance of U.S. support for Ukraine. Well, I would say it's very important whether or not the U.S. sends military support and economic support and other support to Ukraine because... Ukraine is right next to Russia, and that increases the chances of World War III. And we have no vital national security interests in what happens with Ukraine. So Ron DeSantis wrote, wrote, While the U.S. has many vital national security interests, securing our borders, addressing the crisis of readiness within our military, achieving energy security, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. Okay, I don't agree with Ron DeSantis' wording here that this is a territorial dispute. I agree, though, with Tucker and Ron DeSantis that the U.S. should not be subsidizing Ukraine. 
So Ron DeSantis wrote, the U.S. should not provide assistance that could require the deployment of American troops or enable Ukraine to engage in offensive operations beyond its borders. DeSantis castigates the Biden administration for a virtual blank check funding of this conflict. So, yeah, the Biden administration's subsidizing of Ukraine, right, has brought us much closer to World War III. And I think that's an absolute disaster. So Ron DeSantis' comments about Ukraine place him closer to Donald Trump's position on the war. So Donald Trump is very much for America first. Donald Trump disparaged the NATO alliance before and after he became president. LA Times says this isn't a posture that DeSantis or any other would-be president should embrace. Well, is it really in America's interest to be this entangled in NATO in the Ukraine conflict? I would wager no. So I'm broadly sympathetic to the Tucker Carlson, Ron DeSantis position. Won the Cold War anyway. And how did Reagan do that? Well, simple. He kept the American economy strong. Do you remember that? Seems like a long time ago. It's pretty much the opposite of the approach being pushed right now by Lindsey Graham and his friends in the war party. Their plan is to ignore our borders in the United States. Okay, a great question in the chat from my mate Luke Croft. He says, Forty, what is your World War Three plan? Well, my World War Three plan happens to be the exact same as my inflation plan and my exact same plan for surviving an earthquake and my exact same plan for surviving any kind of catastrophe. And that is to have friends, to have community, to know people around me and to be embedded in their lives and for them to be embedded in my life. So the best defense for a catastrophe, for you know, widespread looting and civil unrest, for an earthquake, all right? The best defense is to know your neighbors and to befriend people around the area where you live, right? That's the best way to survive any catastrophe and deal with inflation and the other problems that, that come up in life. There's just so many challenges in life. So here's an example. So let's say we were presented with a quiz asking some difficult questions. All right, individually on our own, we might only get 10, 20% of the answers correct. But if we collectively, say 10 of us, right, the 10 of us watching this show right now, if we collectively pitched in, we'd probably get 80% of the questions right. So too, life is constantly asking us questions, right? Life is asking us questions. Should we take the boss literally here? Should we take the boss seriously? Is the boss just going through some pro forma uh, pronouncements right now? Uh, should I take my wife seriously? Should I take the neighbor seriously? Uh, should I get a doctor's appointment? All right, life is constantly bombarding us with questions, and we develop far more effective, better answers to the questions that life is asking us if we think collectively, if we think socially, if we're interacting with other people and you know, learning from them because I may have a little bit of wisdom and insight into a sliver of life and you will have wisdom and insight and experience, experience strength and hope in whole areas of life that I don't know very much about. And uh, Elliot Blatt's got some wisdom somewhere. Uh, Laponius has wisdom. Elliot has developed great wisdom from dodging the meth addicts from attacking him. Elliot Blatt's plan for surviving catastrophe is to not leave the house and to avoid eye contact. And Glib Medley says that these American drones should have illustrations of only fans girls on them. 
powerful. Do I think Lindsey Graham likes men? Yes, I think he likes men. Glib Medley says, my pronouns will be battle ready. And this is exciting. We now have six live viewers on Rumble and eight live viewers on YouTube. So I am consistently getting overall more viewers most days on Rumble, though not more viewers live, than I do on YouTube. Yep, smash and then double digits. But I want you to know, just because I right now have nine people watching me on YouTube and six people watching me on Rumble, I'm not going to allow that kind of attention to change me. But to defend Ukraines. They're even funding the Ukrainian pension system, not kidding, as our own American banks collapse. What would Ronald Reagan do? He'd probably vomit if he saw it. We're glad Ronald Reagan is not here to watch Lindsey Graham invoke his name to justify anti-American stupidity. What about Lindsey? So, yeah, I agree with Tucker that American uh, pensions are more important than Ukrainian pensions. Lindsey Graham's plans, the plans of almost every Republican senator in the U.S. Senate and all the Democrats, how would they help the United States? But they never answer that question because they couldn't be less interested. So back in the modern era where the rest of us live, you got to. So one economist argued, and let me know what you think of the new sound quality. So the reason that uh, my mic would cut out is that I had uh, Streamlabs noise filter system on. So I've removed Streamlabs noise filtering system from my microphone, from my audio. As a result, you'll get more background noise. So I am just going to completely shut up for five seconds and listen to the sound of my background noise. So before you wouldn't get any background noise, but now there's there's this low level hum, all right, because I removed the noise filtering system. On the other hand, my mic's not going to be cutting out. So it's better, as I understand it, I spent $500 on an audio consultation about two years ago, 18 months ago. And one of the things I learned was it is better to try to get as much of your noise filtering, your auto, audio filtering from your hardware rather than from Streamlabs or from software. So... There is absolutely no software filtering going on right now with my sound. So it is all coming through from the hardware. So yeah, I've got I've got, you know, refrigerators in the background. I turned off my air purifier, but uh let's see. We'll we'll allow the people to decide what they prefer. I wonder what exactly is going on here. So Lindsey Graham is telling us we have to attack the Russian Air Force. Why now? Well, let's see. On Monday, there was a major development in the 2024 presidential race. We sent out a list of questions to the likely Republican candidates, and we asked them where they stood on the war in Ukraine. And we fully expected that most of them would agree with Lindsey Graham and virtually every officeholder in Washington, D.C. But no, that's not what happened. In fact, the opposite happened. Virtually without exception, every Republican presidential hopeful, from Donald Trump, long on the record, to Ron DeSantis, to Greg Abbott, Christy Noem, Vivek Ramaswamy, and others, has turned against the idea of a hot war with Russia. 
Okay, that's that's good news. Do I own any pets? No, I do not. In fact, Ron DeSantis described what is happening in Ukraine as a... And I love pets. I love dogs in particular. I just would rather spend my, my time on other things. So I love playing with other people's pets. Quote, territorial dispute that is not even in the top five critical national security concerns of the United States. Hardly anybody imagined that Ron DeSantis thought that, but he does, and he's on the record saying so. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Republican presidential nominee, almost no matter who it is, will oppose an open-ended commitment to fund the war in Ukraine in order to fight Russia forever. Now, their position is in fact fully in line with the overwhelming majority of conservative voters, the ones who choose the Republican nominee. But those voters have been utterly disenfranchised for the past year as Lindsey Graham and the Atlantic Magazine and the ghost of Ronald Reagan have been permitted to speak for them in bad faith. Okay, so this is where Tucker is important, right? This is an example of Tucker doing something unique in the news media. He is more effective, you know, making the case against subsidizing Ukraine and, you know, tiptoeing up to a hot war with Russia. I don't know anyone who's better than Tucker in the media on this topic. But it's not just conservative voters who don't want war with Russia. It's the majority of all voters. And now there are people running for office, in fact, the most powerful office. Yeah, so there's this widespread view that uh, Israel is very popular with the American people. Well, the American people are overwhelmingly concerned with America, just like Australians are overwhelmingly concerned with Australia and the French are overwhelmingly concerned with France, as they should be. So these foreign policy entanglements, whether it's with Israel or whether it's with Ukraine, all right, that uh, we, we had soldiers, American soldiers a few years ago who got slaughtered in Africa. Right? These foreign policy entanglements are not popular. Who agree with voters, as in a democracy. So for the war party in Washington, this is a flat-out disaster. Oh, the people don't want it. We just spent two years lecturing you about democracy. Yeah, so... You get lectured about democracy, but the democratic will of the people when it comes to foreign policy doesn't really count for much. Foreign policy is overwhelmingly carried out by elites, right? The, the will of the people doesn't have much effect on American foreign policy. And question in the chat, why doesn't Lindsey Graham come out? Because Lindsey Graham is a Republican and it would hurt him with his fellow Republicans if he came out. But the bulk of the population and the people they're about to run against Joe Biden oppose it. How can you defend democracy and push a war that the population doesn't want? Oh, you can't. So they're panicking. And the response is really interesting. Instead of responding with arguments or reasons, instead of convincing Americans that war with Russia will benefit them in some way, they're just pushing ahead for that war with Russia. They don't care about Ukraine at all. Ukraine means nothing to them. If it did, they would want to halt the war because apparently more than 100,000 Ukrainians have already died, but they don't care. They're keeping the war going. That's how much they care about Ukraine. So they're pushing us to war. And by the way, shooting down Russian jets that don't fire on us first is an act of war. It's the definition of an act of war. And of course, Lindsey Graham, steeped in all things military, knows that perfectly well. So we asked Lindsey Graham to come on the show as we have so many times before to explain why should we start World War III? 
he of course declined, as he has so many times before. But he doesn't need our help. The rest of the media everywhere is four square behind him, as always. Here's Jeb Bush's former press secretary. A former Mueller investigator said to me, um, I think about 18 months ago now, that, that the next Russian election interference won't run afoul of any laws. They're that good. They'll just get their signals from which candidates who, who in, in question. Okay, that's absolutely absurd to think that Russia played a significant role interfering, messing around with the American elections, right? Their role was insignificant, right? America has played you know, a far more significant role in the elections of other countries than Russia played with American uh, elections in 2016, 2018, 2020. So Nicole Wallace here, you know, getting all upset about Russian interference with American elections. So, you know, why would America's adversaries not mess with America? Right? It, it would be bizarre not to. ...asked by Tucker Carlson, there are no accidents here, and answered by Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, it's abundantly clear who Russia would be interested in aiding. So if you disagree with those children, you are committing election interference on behalf of Vladimir Putin. How low could political rhetoric go? Is it even possible to get lower? Well, that seems to be the nadir right there. And then the moron in the seat nods, sage, oh yes, that's exactly right. It's election interference to, as a candidate, take a position that's consistent with what the majority of voters want. Wow, dystopian. And if you answer those questions in ways that Jeb Bush's former press secretary doesn't like, oh, you're a disloyal American. Here's more from MSNBC. DeSantis wants to appease Putin, calling the brutal invasion of Ukraine nothing more than a territorial dispute. It's the latest. Okay, so that's just disgusting. All right, this. If if you're not for rampaging into World War Three, it's not because you're appeasing Putin. All right, so this is just a, a disgusting attack that uh, because you're not for you know, subsidizing Ukraine and sending American weapons and uh, into Ukraine and getting close to World War Three. I mean, this get that's gets portrayed as subsidizing or supporting Putin is absolutely absurd. So this is one thing that Tucker does really well, playing all these absurd clips from cable news. It is a sign that the party of DeSantis, Trump, and Tucker is seriously out of touch with the views of most Americans. Ron DeSantis. Okay, that's absurd. All right, most Americans are not gung-ho for Ukraine. What do I think of that Chinese billionaire friendly with Steve Bannon getting arrested? Doesn't surprise me. All right, this this guy seemed quite the the dicey character. So I listened, read a long uh, New Yorker profile of this uh, Chinese billionaire. So if the feds have arrested him, that means the odds are better than ninety percent that this guy will get convicted. All right, the feds in these instances, you know, rarely arrest someone unless they've got him dead to rights. So I, I thought he was a highly dubious character, and doesn't surprise me he's been arrested. Doesn't surprise me that uh, Steve Bannon would hang around with him. Now, if Steve Bannon was able to get millions and millions and millions of dollars of support, like, why should Steve Bannon care? Like, I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. And if uh, they, they had a bunch of, you know, rapists and uh, thugs who they could draft to, to play for them and help the Cowboys win a Super Bowl, uh, I would be thrilled. I mean, you want really nasty people playing uh, tackle football. And 
politics is frequently a game akin to the ferocity of the National Football League. This who is parroting <laughs> Vladimir Putin and Kremlin talking points by calling Russia's invasion yeah. of Ukraine a, quote, <clears throat> territorial dispute. Trump and DeSantis coming up. Yeah, Eugene Robinson, that's who I look to for wisdom. With anti-Ukraine positions, pro-Russia positions in effect. The two Republican frontrunners basically want to run away from Zelensky in Ukraine and into Putin's arms. The anti-woke guy, Ron DeSantis, his ideal is Putin's Russia. Whether so remember when the news media had all these glowing things to say about DeSantis a few months ago because they thought that uh, giving DeSantis a boost would help to absolutely bury Donald Trump. Now that uh, Ron DeSantis looks more and more like a viable candidate, there's just this universal condemnation of Ron DeSantis. So the, the news media used to call George W. Bush a fascist and a Nazi and other horrible things, right, George W. Bush. So now that uh, Ron DeSantis is a formidable candidate, now the media is just absolutely trashing him. So this is one thing Tucker does great with these clip selections. There are no gay people, where there are no women in power, where you know they're all Christians. That's how he wants to see the world. <laughs> so you just wind up in this world where you get moral lectures from former political consultants like Stuart Stevens, not well situated for moral lectures, because you... Right, that was Stuart Stevens, the guy who ran Mitt Romney's losing 2012 campaign, and then he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that was really a, a victory. So Stuart Stevens, oh, what a disgrace, and what a disgrace to Mitt Romney that he had that guy run his campaign. You don't want the Third World War? because you have children or grandchildren, because your own country is in deep trouble, your economy's falling apart, so you're not all in on World War III against Russia and China, and you get a moral lecture from these people? Right, okay. So getting a moral lecture from the banks. But what's interesting is there's actually a lot of news to cover here, news that the other news organizations are completely ignoring. They're basically just handmaidens to power at this point. They're not even pretending. But if you were paying any attention at all, if you thought for even a moment, I'm a journalist, I should cover the news, you might notice that they were getting, to charitably put it, mixed messages from people in power. For example, here's Mark Milley today explaining that Ukraine is armed to the teeth with American weaponry. Two weeks ago, the United States released another security assistance package, which included HIMARS, ammunition, artillery, vehicle maintenance, and vehicles. The Ukrainian soldiers wear the blue and yellow of the Ukrainian flag. But the colors of 50 other nations that met today stand beside Ukraine to support the principles of the rules-based international order. Look how afraid that man looks. I almost want to play the tape again. Go back and look at that on the internet. That man. So yeah, that General Milley, he, he has come out for peace negotiations. So he's gotten out of step with the Biden administration. So I, I think overall, this is a really good Tucker Carlson segment. And is afraid. What's he afraid of? It'd be interesting to know. But what he just told us is we've sent a huge amount of material to Ukraine, artillery, ammunition, a hundred billion. <laughs> so and uh, Ricardo is here. Ricardo says rules-based international order and uh, putting dollar signs around it. Yeah, the, the money tends to go where they feel like there's a rule-based order, right? There's no perfect safety, right? Banks will always be going broke. 
banks will always be you know, needing bailouts. That there's no uh, you know easy solution for for bank woes. But yeah, money prefers to go to where people believe there's a rules based order. Right? You don't want to live in a society that doesn't have a rules based order. But that only makes sense for your nation state. All right. So a nation state can afford to make rules and to preserve rights for its citizens. But outside of your nation state, it is largely illusory to think of a rules-based international order because there's no giant force who's going to look after and maintain and enforce the rules-based order. So an international rules-based order is a delusion, right? The United Nations doesn't have many divisions. Yeah, you keep peace with weapons, right? You only get rights if you're a citizen of a state that has f formidable uh, forces and can afford to protect your rights and enforce your, your rights. And nation states are the ones who create and enforce rights. Right? This idea of global human rights, you know, international human rights, international law, well, there's no one enforcing it. So it doesn't really have much currency. It's a little bit like uh, journalistic ethics. Right? An ethics code only has significance, only has bite if it's clear to whom the ethical behavior is owed. So for doctors, all right, they have ethical duties to the patient. But for a journalist, to whom, to whom do they owe their, their moral obligations? Do they primarily have moral obligations to the reader? to the people they write about, to their employer, to their peers, right? To the the, the business operation that, that funds them, right? There are so many competing ethical obligations for a journalist that, you know, journalistic ethics don't exactly have a whole lot of bite. So too with international human rights, uh, international law, not a lot of significance because there's no power enforcing these Rights. That would suggest that the Ukrainian military has a lot of equipment. They're well armed. Oh, but no. At the very same time that Mark Milley's telling us that, the Pentagon just yesterday informed us that actually Ukraine is running out of munitions. There's reports out there from the, the battlefield that the Ukrainians are running out of munitions. They're having shortages. Uh, is that a concern for the Pentagon? And what's the. So if you felt really sure that you were going to be resupplied, then I would think you'd be a lot more profligate in shooting off your, your weapons. On the other hand, if you're highly insecure about getting resupplied, then I would suspect you'd be a lot more careful about you know where you shoot your weapons. Pentagon doing to alleviate that problem. Yeah, so as we've been doing since the beginning of this campaign, we're continuing to do everything that we can to ensure that we're meeting Ukraine's needs, whether it's ammunition, uh, whether it's air defense, armor. Uh, you know, you've heard us talk extensively about that. Tomorrow's discussion, of course, will be another opportunity to bring the internet. This is great. So Tucker does a great job with these clips, right? For the purpose of the United States, guys, it's to meet Ukraine's needs. And my purpose here doing this show, it's to meet your needs. Let us all meet each other's needs in some kind of wholesome uh, needs meeting connection. <laughs> so Ricardo says the purpose of ethics is to justify wrongdoing. Ethics purpose is to answer the question, what can I get away with? Bro, you believe in God, right? I believe in God. So if you believe in God, you believe that there's one moral law 
that runs the universe and that operates in the universe. There is an ethical code to life and to the universe, and that in the final analysis, God is the author of that moral code. So I don't think you know, we can denigrate the concept of ethics or a moral system. The question is, you know, who's the enforcer of the system? Who is the author of the system? And where can that system be found? So if you're going to say, oh, they're international human rights, but you don't posit that they came from God, then where do these you know, international human rights come from? The United Nations? Ricardo says, America's generals look like they belong in Congress or a business meeting. They're completely out of their depth. We need warriors in charge of our warriors. Ethics are not morals. It's not really a significant difference between ethics and morals. International community together to focus on Ukraine's most urgent needs, to include ammunition. Okay. So this would be a great time. Let's focus on your urgent needs. Do you have any urgent needs right now? This is the time to share. Throw down in the chat. Tell us about your urgent needs. And let's all you know band together to meet each other's urgent needs. So urgent, urgent pop song from the 80s. So leaving aside the fact, the dead certain fact, that the U.S. military probably should have enough of its own ammunition, now they're all invoking Ronald Reagan, remember, peace through superior firepower, weakness invites aggression. Speaking of weakness, the U.S. military increasingly is weak. And part of the reason, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is we're sending all the stuff to Ukraine. Okay, so Tucker is great with the rhetoric, but we're not sending Ukraine our best. We're not sending Ukraine our brightest. We're not sending Ukraine our greatest weaponry. We are sending Ukraine the weapons that we don't want, that we just simply want to be rid of. Ricardo says, the blurring of the lines between ethics and morals are one of the great linguistic problems of the modern age. We've replaced, eliminated morals and replaced them. There's no significant difference between ethics and, and morals, right? They, they both refer to a standard of right and wrong behavior. So there's the military question that no one seems to have answered, but there's also an economic question. Where's all the money going? So we've spent more than Russia's typical annual military budget in Ukraine, and yet the Ukrainian military is out of ammunition again? Okay, we've spent more. All right, that's because we've given Ukraine all sorts of weapons and ammunition that is not important for us, that's way out of date, that we simply want to be rid of, and then we give a dollar figure uh, to that, all right? So, oh, we, we spent, you know, $40 billion. But that's just a dollar figure that we're giving to weaponry and ammunition that we don't want, that doesn't serve us, that we're actually glad to be rid of, that Ukraine's actually doing us a favor by taking us off, off you know, our hands and they can go do with it. Right? We're not giving them our best, our brightest, you know, our most cutting edge technology and, and weaponry. We're giving them crap. Okay. That might be a question for Zelensky. Where's all the money going? You're on the phone with BlackRock all day. Where's all the money going? People are getting very rich. You can't have an audit because if you want an audit of where your money is going into the most corrupt country in Europe, you're a tool of Putin. So Ricardo says, ethics are flexible, morals are not. 
Well, they both change depending on the situation, right? So in the end, you know, the situation determines what is the, the binding morality or the binding ethic. And I, I don't I don't share Tucker's contempt for Zelensky. Zelensky seems to me to be doing a good job fighting for his people. So that doesn't mean that we need to subsidize him. Right? That doesn't mean that we need to risk World War III in support of him. But I don't know how you can denigrate a man for doing the very best job he possibly can for, for his people. Right? I, I don't understand how people would not be at least emotionally on the side of Ukraine. I am 100% emotionally on the side of Ukraine. I'm just not for subsidizing Ukraine. The media, by the way, isn't mad about the fact our money appears to be disappearing into this sinkhole of corruption called Ukraine or being used to close Christian churches. No, they're mad because the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, hasn't rushed to kiss the ring of Zelensky. Watch. President Volodymyr Zelensky makes an offer to the U.S. House Speaker that Kevin McCarthy is refusing. Look at Kiev, for example. He was invited to Kiev by Zelensky. Any other Speaker of the House would have obviously gone there to show solidarity with our ally. This is all completely Kevin McCarthy kind of pandering to the extreme wing of his party. What is your reaction to Kevin McCarthy refusing uh, President Zelensky's invitation uh, to come to Ukraine or discuss with him directly uh, aid to Ukraine? I don't know what kind of single-celled creature Kevin McCarthy is more like. It's an amoeba or it's a paramecium. He is letting down the United States. I understand Kevin McCarthy, again, is playing to his isolationist uh, America uh, first, which is actually not America first. It's actually America last on the world stage. Wow. These people are going to have a lot to answer for at some point, hopefully soon. But imagine how degrading the scenario you just witnessed. Yeah, these are great clips by, by Tucker, and I agree with him, right? Kevin McCarthy's primary obligation should be to the United States of America and to the United States of America's vital interests. Ukraine does not figure in the America's vital interests, just not there. It is. They're hectoring the Speaker of the House. And by the way, we would defend, if the roles were reversed, a Democrat. Speaker of the House on these same grounds because they're American grounds, not partisan grounds. But here you have these people, these hair hats on television, scolding the American Speaker of the House because he won't suck up to a corrupt foreign leader who's demanding that you send your children to a war in a country you can't find on a map. Zelensky. Okay, I don't think Zelensky's demanding that America send troops. I think Zelensky's done seems to have done a, a great job fighting for his people. That doesn't mean that we need to fall in line. And Kevin McCarthy is right to have higher priorities than what's going on in Ukraine. Now, if Ukraine was vital to American national interests, then that would be a different story. But Ukraine is relevant to America's national interests. And Ukraine's fate is the same of the fate of other small, vulnerable nations next door to great powers. Throughout history, the strong take what they want and the weak endure what they must. That's the way the world works. Great powers essentially have always got to do what they want in their own backyard. Ukraine is in Russia's background. Look forward. You need to have Norbert on to discuss the Silicon Valley banking situation. 
Uh, what what are Norvin's insights into the Silicon Valley Bank? He's on television almost every day demanding that you send your children to war, really, where they could die. Now, typically, people who demand that you put your children in a position where they could die, not your allies, exactly. No, they're your enemies. Yeah. You must kiss his ring because he's a religious figure now, right? But as they were yapping about all of that, they missed, well, some other things that were going on in the United States. Like, for example, the collapse of our economy. The second and third biggest bank failures in the history of this country just took place. Now, the venerable Credit Suisse is down 97% from its all time. Okay, this is dramatic and this is compelling and it grabs your attention, but I don't think we're seeing the collapse of our economy. So I'm going to side with those who say that uh, these bank failures are not presaging anything like what we experienced in 2008. I, I don't think uh, that our economy is falling apart. I think overall our econo economy is on pretty solid ground when compared to other major economies. We're in much better shape. Time high. It's trading for about two Swiss francs. You worried about that? Yeah, probably. You should be. Your leaders aren't worried at all. The media don't care at all. Instead, they're telling you the. Okay, that's absurd to say that the media doesn't care at all about this latest banking crisis. All right, this banking crisis is dominating the news. All right, let's go to the New York Times right now. Top story, upper left. Bank fears go global, sending a shudder through markets. Oh, top left, New York Times. Shares in Credit Suisse tumbled to a record low, prompting Switzerland to say it would be fine. It would financially support if it needed. So Tucker Carlson just 100% wrong there, saying that the news media doesn't care about this banking story and the Credit Suisse story. Right? That's absurd. You're a traitor to your country if you don't want a third world war. And they're panicked, of course, just like Millie was panicked in that tape. They're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they know the public is not on their side. But the second we actually go to war with Russia, they will use that as a pretext to crush all dissent. There is no dissent allowed in wartime. And that's what this is really about, in addition to their personal enrichment. It's about changing the domestic politics of the United States. The second we can all say we're at war with Russia, not in effect, but in reality, in a hot war, which is what they want, that's the, that's the moment that you were no longer allowed to express your opinions. And the penalty is jail during war. It's happened a lot, and they want that now. Hopefully, on the base of the questionnaires we received, other people will take charge soon and save us from this lunacy. In the meantime, Colonel Douglas McGregor joins us to assess what we're seeing. Doug, thank you so much for coming on. One of the very few people... So, Doug McGregor, interesting analyst. So, I... I can't have any uh, big arguments with, with him. Don't, don't know him enough, but uh, I'm glad that Tucker has him on. We, we need contrary voices because there's such a uniformity in the news media presentation of Russia versus Ukraine, and there's such uniformity on media presentation of almost all major stories. It's like they decide on a collective emotional response to every major story, and then they all you know, play to that same emotional response and the world is so complicated that we need to hear different points of view. Good on Tucker for providing consistently a different point of view from what you get elsewhere in the news media. And good on Colonel Douglas McGregor for providing a different view from what we normally We receive. trust. I think you've been honest since the very beginning and taken a, a, lot of, a lot of abuse for it. Where do you think this conflict stands tonight? 
Well, the Ukrainians are being crushed. Even the Washington Post and the New York Times. And Elliot Blatt says people don't care about our banks. And Ricardo says, I agree with Elliot. America's want uh, banks to fail. We've been salivating for it for 15 years. Well, guess what? If banks fail, it's going to be an absolute disaster, right? Businesses will fail, right? Tens of millions of Americans will lose their, their jobs. The country will go down the tubes, right? It would be an absolute disaster. I don't know. If, if, you, want, if you want America's banks to fail, you must have a, a death wish, Right. If America's banks start failing, uh, it would be just utter anarchy in the in the United States. Right. Tens of millions of people would lose their jobs. It would be an absolute disaster. Right. Let, let the banks fail. America will fail with them. Right. You find with uh, 40 million Americans losing their jobs, that's what would happen if the major banks failed. Let the bankers go. OK. At the same time you're saying that let the bankers go, then you're saying, let America go, right? We can't afford our defenses. We can't afford to pay Social Security. We can't afford to uh, provide government services. You'd have tens of millions of Americans out of work. You would have desperate, dark, dark times. Very well be the end of the United States of America. free them from their desks okay so you've got a death wish i mean if you want that the death of america if you want tens of millions of your fellow americans to be out of work right if you want uh, the country you know plunged into utter anarchy then you would you know salivate for the destruction of the banks afford it's all funny money there's nothing funny about it right foreigners pour billions of dollars into the united states because it is out of all the various possibilities the safest place to park your cash the united states is the dominant power in the world today but we would not be if our major banks failed we have land and water and resources and human capital and that would all be irrelevant for the tens of millions of americans who would lose their jobs if the banks fail right we would cease to have a first world economy you would cease to have heating and air conditioning you would cease to you, the, the internet would, would collapse. Everything would collapse around you. You can't eat cash if the cash is backed by the economy and military might of the world's strongest power, the United States, right? That will, that will you know, provide real purchasing power because the United States is such a formidable force in the world. Something needs to change. Yes, the changes that need to come primarily need to occur inside of us. Not, not with the banks. Our problems are not in the stars and our problems are not in the banks. Our problems, our primary problems are not in the news media or in our politics. Our primary problems are in our souls. Our primary problems are in our compulsion, compulsions. Our primary problems are in our maladaptive reactions to stimuli. Our primary problems lie in our own blindness and maladaptive selfishness and needless cruelty not outside of us. ...are now finally beginning to print the truth. Their casualties are horrific. We've effectively seen the Russians destroy three separate armies built by the Ukrainians. And, and everyone is beginning to wonder what's really happening. The, the truth is coming out that this war was not started by Russia, that Russia begged us not to try and drag Ukraine into NATO. 
We ignored Russia, and Russia made it very clear that they were going to defend their national interest. All they wanted was neutrality for Ukraine. Americans know something else, and I think somebody said this a few years ago. It's the economy, stupid. And exactly. every Republican candidate understands that and has to win the American people over. The people in Washington are worried about their donors. The Republican candidates are worried about American voters. Well, I mean, to, to see Lindsey Graham invoke Ronald Reagan, who... And the chat says, the real question, is the Silicon Valley bank collapse affecting how much the United States? It's affecting very little of the United States. I mean, bank stocks took, took a pounding. The might of the Federal Reserve and the American political system is, is bailing out all the depositors. And uh, I don't expect that we're going to have anything like 2008. Laponia says, I'm working, I'm minding my own business. Bank executives commit massive fraud. Bank fails. The primary problem is in my soul, not the bankers who are reckless in their duties. <laughs> Ricardo says the bankers deserve to wander in the desert for 40 years. Like, why do you think the bankers are worse people than you are? Like, how are you morally superior to bankers? All right. Uh, what, what exactly is it that uh, the bankers have done that, that's so heinous? All right. Anyone can deposit money in a bank for a bank to survive then has to invest those deposits in a way that gets a pretty solid return. And they have to you know, navigate challenging times and they're imperfect. They will make mistakes and uh, you'll always have banks during turbulent times you know, losing their liquidity. You can up, you know, liquidity requirements, but then banks can lend less, invest less, and earn less. Laponia says, I don't rip people off, bro. I'm not reckless with other people's money. Uh, so what are the other banking systems that are just so much superior to America's? Now, America is weighed down by the 1977 Community Reinvestment Act that forced banks to lend money to people who are not creditworthy simply because they are of a, a sacred you know, racial group. We do have government regulations forcing banks to open branches in places that are not economically justifiable. So the 2008 subprime mortgage crash was entirely caused by government mandates that banks extend money to people who are a poor risk of paying back those loans. Aside from this disastrous government intervention into banking, forcing banks to extend money to sacred minorities who are highly unlikely to pay, pay back these loans, like which that, that makes you know, other banking systems superior in that uh, Canadian banks, British banks, Australian banks, French and German banks, Japanese banks, right, they are not forced to loan money to people who are unlikely to pay that money back, right? These other countries don't have affirmative action when it comes to, to banking. So that's an absolute disaster on the part of the United States, right? But uh, overall, we still got the world's strongest economy. Swiss bankers are the best, says Luke. Talmud praises Jews who do not charge Gentiles interest. So if you want to get, get money without interest, then what what else should people be forced to to give away right uh, allow people to stay on your real estate or in in homes that you own without paying rent right if 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 you have someone who stays 
you know, rents from you, they have to pay for that privilege. Someone's going to rent money from you, they should have to pay for that privilege. Who won the Cold War with a superior economy and not with tanks. That's true. Ignore the fact that our banks are collapsing. How exactly do you think people like Graham and virtually every Republican senator, with a few honorable exceptions, how do they think we're going to afford a war against Russia and China simultaneously? Well, it's unaffordable. It's unaffordable against Russia. You don't have to lump China with the, with the rest of them. It's impossible. We are on the road to bankruptcy. The American people sense it. The bank uh, bailouts are not going to happen as they did before. Uh, you know, the best thing I can think of is to say that Lindsey Graham and his peers in Washington, they're not channeling Ronald Reagan. They're channeling the Three Stooges. The last thing Americans need is a war. No more political and military incompetence, ineptitude. So Laponia says bankers need serious oversight. Yes, they do need serious oversight. But uh, it's not like, oh, if you just double the oversight, then things would be much, much better, right? If you impose more onerous regulation, right, that comes with a price. Everything comes with a price. It's not like there's just this one great solution, all right, and why aren't we doing this one great solution? Increased regulation comes with a price. Uh, not regulating comes with a price. There's no free lunch here. You know who else needs serious oversight? Laponius needs serious oversight. 40 needs serious oversight. Media Hits needs serious oversight. Funny Frank needs serious oversight. Ricardo needs serious oversight. We all need serious oversight. All right? We should live our lives, generally speaking, in a transparent manner with the assumption that everybody knows everything. So we're not trying to get away with stuff. We should live our lives as though what we're saying and doing is going to be published accurately and fairly on, on the front page of the New York Times. We all benefit from accurate criticism. You know, we all benefit from being held accountable. And uh, Laponius, right, he knows the joys of serious oversight. That's why he comes to this show. And he gets that serious oversight that he so badly needs. Ricardo says, God is all the oversight I need, bro. That's baloney. Right? You can fool yourself day in, day out that God is giving you your oversight. You need real human oversight. Right? People are infinitely capable of deluding themselves that they're you know, good with Jesus, that they're aligned with God, and that they just go out and do horrible things. You can fool yourself. You can morally justify anything that you're doing. Right? The human being is incredibly good at coming up with justifications for doing whatever it wants to do. But it's a lot harder to convince other people that you're doing the right thing. So that's why people, generally speaking, need to belong to a community because a community provides some oversight and some discipline. And it's a lot harder to talk your community into believing that what you're doing is okay as opposed to yourself, right? Individuals are infinitely capable of fooling themselves. God approves of my YouTube content, says Ricardo corruption they want an economy that works and they're not going to stand remember that woman in the 1960s who was a stripper for christ right not many people don't realize this but that woman is ricardo's mother and and ricardo is, is the the 2023 version of a stripper for christ you know he's good with the lord right he's he's down with jesus he's walking the walk with the lord he's good with god that's all he needs. He's a stripper for Christ. 
stand around and watch the financial system go under. They want real leadership, not a cut, not a cardboard cutout president. If we actually followed Lindsey Graham's advice and attacked the Russian Air Force and, of course, immediately became embroiled in a hot war with Russia, how long before you were arrested would it be, do you think, for saying what you just did? Oh, I, I don't know. But I'm less, less concerned about that than the possibility that we would actually provoke a direct confrontation with the Russians. What have we already seen, Tucker? They're ready to fight. They're already partially mobilized. They'll put millions of men into the field quickly. We're not in a position to do that. We can't even recruit for our armed forces. The left has destroyed the United States armed forces. Who are we kidding? Our stocks that we build up over years with them. Okay, I'm going to beg to differ here. I think the United States military, right, with its LGBTQ strong, all right, would just uh, run through the Russian military like a hot knife through butter. Munition and equipment, they're exhausted. We haven't even gone to war. This is lunacy. It is lunacy. It is lunacy. Okay, funny Frank insists on playing this video. Let's let's give it a shot. Better not be better not be copyright. Let's have a look here. Okay. Says the dawn of capitalism. The corporate landscape has been the stage for a vicious feud between two of history's most Ooh, bitter rivals. A bunch rivals. of D-bag bankers. Look, shouldn't you be in a cage somewhere working on a pitch book? Work that pitch book. Work it. Some consultants out. Probably got one suit and they bought it from Men's Warehouse. Bankers. I'm sure I get into trouble for playing this. Damn, it feels good to be a banker, a Wall Street musical. I just don't want the aggravation. Okay, what I want to talk about is fascism coming to America, guys. Fascism. Autumn presents. This article was published in the print version of The New Republic with the headline, it Didn't Happen Here, written by Daniel Bessner, read by Eric Jason Martin. Since the election of Donald Trump, a specter has haunted the United States, the specter of fascism. From the New York Times to the Atlantic, from CNN to the New York Review of Books, liberals and socialists alike have asked the same question, is it happening here? Answers have run the gamut. Some insist that the similarities between contemporary American populism and fascism, their shared racism, reliance on the petit bourgeois, hypernationalism, and xenophobia, indicate that fascism finally has come to America. Others disagree, maintaining that the enabling structural conditions of classical European fascism, first-hand experience of total war, a powerful left, and a relatively weak state capable of being taken over, no longer exist, and that whatever right-wing populism is, describing it as fascist occludes more than it illuminates. Into this fray enters the intellectual historian Bruce Kuklick, whose Fascism Comes to America provides an entirely new perspective on a debate that's become a bit exhausting. Unlike other pundits and thinkers, Kuklick is not interested in whether fascism as such has arrived in the United States. Rather, 
he's concerned with how the term itself has been used in the last century of American discourse. Fascism, Kuklik's exhaustive survey of U.S. politics and culture shows, has generally functioned as a so-called floating signifier. In the words of the anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, who originated the phrase, a floating signifier is a term void of meaning and the... Right. Fascism, when, when used for American political developments, is a term devoid of meaning. It's just an epithet. And whenever I hear anyone using it seriously to describe political developments in America, I just know that they're not serious thinkers. And that includes Jonathan Chait writing for New York Magazine. And uh, he says... Most people understand fascism to mean a single-party state in which effective political opposition is impossible. Right? Most people understand fascism that way. He just entirely makes up th this definition of, of fascism. Right? That's absolutely absurd. So he says Trump and DeSantis are advocating authoritarian measures that weaken democracy. Well, the left has many problems with democracy, right? The, the left doesn't want Californians to be able to vote to not extend social welfare spending to illegal immigrants. They want The left wants the courts to overrule all these populist measures that are favored and voted for by the majority of the population. So there are many ways where the left decries it wants to limit and reduce democracy, and there are some ways that the right wants to reduce democracy. So there's nothing more authoritarian or anti-democratic about Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis than there is about uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or, you know, any of the other Joe Biden. All right. So but Jonathan Chait says that uh, Republicans are semi-fascist. It's just absurd. Right. Anyone who, who uses this language is not thinking clearly. Thus apt to receive any meaning. At one point or another, every political perspective in the United States has been identified as fascist. In the last two decades alone, Jonah Goldberg railed against liberal fascism, as Chris Hedges dubbed the Christian right, American fascists. Dinesh D'Souza claimed that Hillary Clinton was fascist. Paul Krugman said the same about Trump. Uh, Dennis Prager uses you know, fascism as an epithet frequently for the left. I mean, a lot of, you know, boneheaded Republicans say, oh, nationalized medicine, right? Socialized medicine, that's fascist. Uh, absurd, right? Fascism was a movement that reacted to communism, and it took power in Italy between World War I and World War II. There is disagreement over whether the Nazis were really fascist because fascism is not racist, and the early supporters of Mussolini were Jewish, Right. There's nothing inherently racist, for example, about fascism, but fascism has absolutely nothing to do with American political developments. And even fringe ideologies weren't safe. Sebastian Gorka linked socialism with fascism, while Nuriel Rubini made similar claims about libertarianism. The one consistent quality the term fascism has... Right, calling libertarianism fascism. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd. ...retained since the 1930s, is its negative valence. Almost no one uses it positively. Instead, to bar... Well, 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 that guy hasn't been watching our channel. I mean, half the, half the viewers of this channel here do, you know, more for fascism before 7 a.m. than... How does that joke go? Right, let's go back to talking. ...is concerned that this is part of a trend. 
that will really tank the U.S. economy. Then today, shares in Credit Suisse hit an all-time low. The bank has been struggling for a while now, for several years. Last year, Credit Suisse reported an annual net loss of $8 billion, the largest since 2008. Late today, the Swiss National Bank said it will support Credit Suisse. So that's good, apparently, maybe. Banks are so vital for any first world economy. You'll never have a state that just allows banks willy-nilly to go bankrupt. You'll always have states stepping in to prop up banking because you can't have a first world economy without solvent banks, even if that means they have to be nationalized. But the overall picture is scary. So how did this happen? What exactly are we watching? We thought it'd be nice to be joined by someone who's been in this world for a long time. David Sachs is the co-founder and partner of Craft Ventures, also the co-founder of PayPal and host of the All In podcast. He joins us. David, thank you so much for coming on. I'm just going to stand back and let you explain what you think is causing this. Well, Tucker, I think what's going on here, there's a bunch of issues that were particular to Credit Suisse. They've had a series of scandals and compliance right. issues and exec changes over the past few years. But there is a common pattern here with what's happening in the U.S. banking system, which is these banks are under tremendous stress right now. And if there's weaknesses at these banks, they're getting flushed out and exposed and deposits are leaving the system very quickly, causing these banks to be imperiled. And then potentially creating the risk of the next cascading failure because all these banks are sort of interlinked and this is where you get sort of systemic risk. So what is causing this stress? I would posit that the reason for the stress is that we've had this rate tightening cycle for the last year. It's the fastest uh, time that uh, interest rates have been hiked by the Fed in our entire lifetimes. And what caused that? It was the worst inflation in 40 years. So this is basically what is putting tremendous stress on the whole banking system is that rates have gone up so violently and so suddenly that deposits are leaving because they're going to other alternatives like money market funds, but also. Yeah, I think this is pretty good analysis from from David Sachs. So funny, Frank keeps saying in the chat, you know, whatever happened to monkeypox, guys, we got a vaccine for monkeypox. You know, thanks to our vaccines, we got to crush monkeypox. No, thank God for our elite. No, thank God for our vaccines. Elliot says, I like the image of banks chain smoking and popping Xanax. <laughs> Guys, why, why the hate for our bankers? All right, they're just like you and me, only they're smarter. Assets on the books that were supposed to be safe, like long dated bonds, right. T bills, mortgage bonds all of a sudden they've become toxic assets. They were supposed to be safe assets. Now they're basically toxic. And I think that everybody's trying to understand how deep this problem goes. And it's- So we all want safety, right? Bankers want safety, you want safety, I want safety. Nothing good happens with a woman, right? Unless she, she feels safe, but there's no absolute guaranteed safety in this world. Situations and events are always changing. So that which is safe, one day becomes highly unsafe. The next day, that person who you feel safe around one day becomes unsafe the next day. So we live in a complicated world and we're all vulnerable. Bankers are vulnerable, right? Nation states are vulnerable. That's why the wise person, the wise people, the wise community, the wise nation state, the wise banker puts survival pretty close to the top of the agenda. It's good in a sense that you know, whether it's the Swiss government or the Fed is kind of taking steps to intervene and prevent a total run on the banks. I think that's good. But the problem is we've had such bad Fed policy for the last number of years now that it's entirely too little too late. 
And uh, you, that's can, what makes can I ask the situation you to pause? really scary. So, so you do, I think you described it well. To, back to inflation. We had scary inflation mm-hmm. just about a, a, a year ago. What caused that inflation? Let's go even farther back, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, it's really simple. What caused inflation is money printing and, and excessive spending. We had trillions and trillions of dollars being spent and printed out of Washington. And this started even before the Biden administration. Biden really took it to a new level. Remember, in the first quarter of his presidency, we had that American Rescue Plan, which is $2 trillion of COVID relief that we didn't need because COVID was winding down. And the economy had already recovered and was hot. And that's why even Larry Summers warned him at the time. Uh, economists of their own party said, listen, this risks inflation. And sure enough, the inflation came just four months later. And what did they do? They said it was transitory. It was a big lie. Yellen right. and Powell and Biden all said that this is transitory. So they could keep spending more money. And the Fed kept printing and QE continued for another six months. I would posit that six months really created the bubble of 2021. The markets got super frothy. That's when tons of sort of hot deposits went into uh, SVB and and other banks. And it really it took the whole it took the risk to another level. I mean, in other words, these guys ran the economy at 150 miles an hour and then they slammed on the brakes. Right. And what you're seeing now is the resulting car crash. And the only thing we don't know is whether this is a two-car crash or a 20-car pileup on the highway. And, you know, if they had just acted last summer or that summer of 2021, when you first got that inflation print of 5.1 percent, if they right. had said, OK, we have a problem. This is not transitory. It's real. If they had started raising rates then, they could have done it more gradually. We would have had exactly. a lot more time. And we wouldn't have needed such a violent cycle of interest rate uh, hikes that have now basically caused this enormous stress on the banking system. So nicely put. Okay, fascism coming to America, guys. You've got to be on the lookout. Fascism. Right? With the banking crisis, we'll get a rise of fascism. Borrow Kuklik's acid description. The term is the verbal equivalent of throwing a tomato at a speaker at a public event. Fascism, Kuklik shows, does not so much isolate a thing as it does some stigmatizing. Indeed, fascism's power in American discourse comes from the fact that it has no stable meaning. It's mostly an all-purpose curse word, a highfalutin fuck this, which means that the fascism debate, as currently constructed, can never end. Right, and this is analysis from a left-wing intellectual. All right, this isn't from a Republican, this isn't from a centrist, this is from a left-wing intellectual saying the use of fascism to describe politics in America, it is absolutely absurd. The term fascism first entered popular discourse in 1921, when Italian dictator Benito Mussolini christened his political party the National Fascist Party. Mussolini employed the word, which derives from the Italian fascio, meaning bundle, for two reasons. First, it signified his conviction that the Italian people were stronger when individuals acted as a coherent unit. Second, it referenced the Roman fasces, a bundle of rods ancient magistrates used to symbolize their strength and, if necessary, to flog wrongdoers. With this one word, Mussolini displayed both the promise and threat of his movement. Right. Fascism came about between World War I and World War II in Italy, because it met very real needs of the time, right? Italy, Germany, right? Portugal, Spain, they didn't have choices between uh, strong democratic parties, right? They basically only had choices 
between parties of the extreme right and parties of the extreme left. And if these countries succumb to communism, that's going to set off a civil war because the armed forces in these countries, you know, would not allow them to, to go communist. So the only possible political solution for countries like Italy and Germany in the 1930s, Portugal and Spain, was to go with the far right solution because that was the only possible solution that would not lead to an immediate civil war. So the United States is in a totally different situation, right? It's very easy to judge countries where you've never been in such a difficult situation, you know, stuck between a choice between communism and fascism, right? Nobody you know, who's sane wants to throw in their lot with communism, right? And nobody's saying wants to throw in their lot with Nazism. Initially, some American intellectuals were intrigued by the romance of Italian fascism. One prominent example was Herbert Crowley, a founder of the New Republic, who saw in fascism a potential means to rescue a progressivism that by the 1920s was in steep decline. Crowley insisted that Mussolini's vibrant movement rhymed with American-style progressivism, both fascism and progressivism emphasized supra-individual obligations to people and nation over parochial individualistic ones and fetishized pragmatic politics. Okay, so we have these responses to stimuli, and when these responses help us to survive, they are adaptive, and when our responses make our survival less likely, they are maladaptive. So sometimes an individualist strategy is the best strategy for particular circumstances. But sometimes events change and the best strategy is something more collective, right? It's not like individualism or collectivism are just marked out by the will of heaven to be the most adaptive response in all circumstances. So sometimes left-wing responses are the most adaptive responses to a particular set of events. Other times, right-wing responses are the most adaptive responses to a particular set of events. There are reasons why we have you know, about half the population sympathetic to right-wing responses and about half the population sympathetic to left-wing responses because these ingrained responses to life, whether it's an individualism or a collectivism, a respecter of hierarchy or a left-wing egalitarianism, right, these are have all proven themselves to be adaptive in various circumstances over thousands and thousands of years. So the right-wing response means to respect hierarchy uh, among people, and the left-wing response tends to be that uh, egalitarianism is better. The right-wing response is that traditional ways of organizing communities and families are best. The left-wing approach is let's try some of these you know, new ways. Let's, let's do something new. All right, so the nuclear family, men just marrying women, all right, that's the traditional response. Uh, Left-wing response is, oh, you know, maybe gay marriage is a great thing. So we have evolved, you know, different responses to stimuli, and sometimes, some circumstances, the left-wing response is, you know, the, the most adaptive. Other circumstances, a moderate approach is more adaptive, and other circumstances, a right-wing approach. Mussolini, in fact, even listed the pragmatist philosopher William James, a lodestone for progressives, as a primary influence. To thinkers like Crowley, these similarities suggested that fascists might have something to teach Americans. 
Fascism only became a dirty word in American discourse in the 1930s, as Mussolini's Italy became increasingly associated with Adolf Hitler's Germany. As they had admired Mussolini, some Americans initially admired Hitler for his seeming ability to reinvigorate German society through the establishment of programs like Strength Through Joy, which encouraged internal tourism. So if Hitler had died in 1938, he would have gone down as one of the, the greatest leaders of Germany ever. He would have gone down as one of the, the greatest statesmen of the, the 20th century. Right? Hitler had 80-90% support among the German people through the 1930s until he invaded Poland. So Hitler had a long string of successes after that, but uh, his, you know, his trajectory started trending downward once he invaded Russia. So for a while, you know, Hitler seemed to be doing the impossible. That's a very good definition of charisma. When you see someone pulling off the impossible, all right, you're more likely to be curious about the person, lend them resources, support them. And so the person who's pulled off one impossible feat then gets more resources. He may be capable then of pulling off another seemingly impossible feat. Eventually, he's going to get defeated and his aura of charisma will disappear. But you'll often see, you know, a new live streamer come along and they, you know, pull off something on live streams that you didn't think possible. And so you impute to them this this uh, quality of charisma. And then eventually, usually the the golden age for a live streamer is, you know, probably less than a year. Because, you know, every live streamer eventually becomes humiliated and their their run of charisma terminates. But by the mid-1930s, the luster began to come off both Nazism and Italian fascism. In 1934, Hitler violently purged his own ranks in the infamous Night of the Long Knives. A year later, the German dictator passed the Nuremberg Laws, while the Italian one invaded Ethiopia. A year after that, Germany seized the Rhineland, and Hitler and Mussolini united to form the Rome-Berlin Axis. These events led Americans to identify Mussolini with Hitler and fascism with Nazism. Because Americans concluded that Mussolini was in the thrall of Hitler, by the end of the 1930s, the negative connotation of fascism had become irrevocably blurred. While the Italians hardly counted, Hitler was routinely and haphazardly identified as fascist. Il Duce was left in Der Führer's dust. But even at this early stage in its history, fascism functioned as more than a neutral descriptor. It instead acted as a foul noun of preference that Americans deployed against anyone with whom they disagreed politically. The most popular targets of opprobrium were President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his New Deal. At various points in the 1930s, a number of notable figures so it's interesting, during the 1930s and 40s, virtually all the major American newspapers were strongly opposed to FDR. Right? It's kind of the opposite situation that we have today. Derided FDR or the New Deal as fascist, including liberal philosopher John Dewey, who worried FDR was creating a police state, socialist politician Norman Thomas, who worried FDR was beginning to resemble Mussolini, former Republican President Herbert Hoover, who likewise worried FDR was too similar to European dictators, and populist Senator Huey Long, who worried FDR was too close to the business class. 
But the president was hardly the only one ridiculed in this fashion, as Kuklik highlights. And uh, the chat over on Odyssey says, what are other ways, Forty, that you are similar to Hitler? Well, I'm a vegetarian, though Hitler's uh, vegetarianism is putative. It's not fully real. I'd like to believe that uh, I'm kind to animals. Hitler was kind to animals. And I've uh, often tried to get by on my charisma and then <laughs> gone bankrupt. And I breathe air, drink water. So uh, I'm, I'm a dreamer, all right? Uh, I've published an autobiography. So those are some of my similarities with, with Hitler. But I haven't killed anyone, bro. Until the U.S. entry into World War II, everyone called anyone a fascist. No incident displays the term's malleability more than an informal 1937 survey undertaken by the social theorist Stuart Chase, who asked almost 100 people what fascism meant to them. The respondents offered a range of diverse, even antithetical, definitions. A lawyer said fascism was a coercive, capitalistic state, while a housewife identified it as the same thing as communism— an author answered that it was an all-powerful police force, while a farmer characterized it as lawlessness. A social worker described it as government in the interest of the majority, while a journalist insisted it was undesired government of the masses by a self-seeking, fanatical minority. Still, while the respondents provided diverse interpretations of fascism, most agreed that whatever fascism was, they didn't like it. Or, as a schoolboy put it with youthful bravado, fascism was something that's got to be licked. It took So there's a lot of good articles in the New Republic. I mean, it's a lefty publication. This is an article by a lefty about a book by a lefty. But uh, even the lefties are right sometimes. The U.S. entry into World War II to solidify how fascism was used. Once the United States joined the Allied effort after the 1941 Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor and other U.S. possessions, political categories crystallized. Now, America battled Germany, Italy, and Japan, countries all specified as fascist. Though FDR still had his critics, they were less likely to designate the president a fascist. In short, the identification of the Axis as fascist and the wartime desire for unity combined to make haphazard allegations of fascism a thing of the past, at least for a time. One might have expected fascism to perish in 1945 along with the Nazi regime with which it was associated. But while the term was used far less after the war than it was during it, it nonetheless became a permanent part of the American lexicon. Why didn't fascism die an ignoble death like once popular but eventually discarded political identifications like Whig, Know-Nothing, and Dixiecrat? The reason, Kuklik argues, is that by the time the United States entered the war, American governance had begun to be defined by a novel approach to politics dubbed welfare liberalism, whose proponents positioned themselves against fascism on the right and communism on the left. Strange as it seems to us today, 
Before the 1940s, Americans rarely employed the European political spectrum, which pitted a reactionary right against a socialist left, to understand their own politics. Yeah, so what what uh, counts as right and left in America is very different from what counts as right and left in, in Europe. So what is traditionally counted as right wing in Europe is support for the monarchy, uh, support for a strong state, and uh, support for the left in Europe has been support for socialism and, and communism. So the word fascist, all right, it, it's employed for emotional and rhetorical reasons in American politics. It doesn't have any specific realistic meaning. Instead, most literate Americans believed that their country enjoyed its own political divisions that set apart from those of Europe. Whenever Americans did make use of the European spectrum, it was usually to point to a radical left of which they wanted little part. In a sense, before the 1940s, the United States had an immoderate left, but no immoderate right. Abhorrent tendencies in U.S. politics presently identified as on the far right, such as avowed white supremacy, resided comfortably in the mainstream, especially since the Democratic Party relied on its segregationist wing to pass and promote the New Deal. Okay, I'll leave it there for tonight, but a great article here in the New Republic. Does American fascism exist? For nearly a century, Americans have been throwing the term around without agreeing what the term means. <laughs> Jim Goat said something like, Luke looks like he could have been an SS general. God forbid, God forbid. So among the many lies, it's hard even to keep track of all the lies, but Joe Biden's DHS secretary has told us repeatedly the border is completely secure. But now the chief of the Border Patrol just contradicted that in the starkest possible terms for that story. Fox's Trace Gallagher joins us now. Hey, Trace. Hey, Tucker. He could not have been more clear if he stood on top of the Paso del Norte Bridge in El Paso and yelled, liar, liar. It is a quadruple blow to the Biden administration because Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz defied DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and President Biden by saying this. Does DHS have operational control of our entire border? No, sir. You heard the secretary. He said we have operational control. That's the definition of operational control. Based upon the definition you have, sir, up there, no. We don't have operational control. No, sir. And there was more. Chief Ortiz also said the border is not secure. He defended horseback agents who President Biden accused of whipping Haitian migrants. And then he offered a final spike in the heart by simultaneously coming after this administration and supporting the previous administration, saying it was a mistake to stop building the wall, Trump's wall. Chief Ortiz also pleaded for Congress to give him more border agents and ask for the tools to deliver consequences. That's important, right? Because for 26 months, millions of migrants have crossed the border and received zero consequences. The chief told lawmakers this fiscal year alone, 385,000 illegal immigrants have evaded border patrol. Those are people that border agents tried to catch but didn't, you know, the gotaways. And an additional 79,000 snuck into the country completely undetected. The final blow might be the chief's language, where contrary to Secretary Mayorkas, Ortiz referred to the border situation as a, quote, crisis. Much more on this tonight on Fox News at Night, Tucker. Trace Gallagher, thanks so much for that story. Thanks, Trace. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Don't be fascist, guys.
don't be fascist.